I received some fascinating advice, some preaching advice this week. There, hardly a week goes by that I don't receive some preaching advice, either from within my household or without it. But this was actually an expert in preaching, and this was his advice. Be yourself, underprepared, and weird. So, as Meatloaf might say, two out of three ain't bad. We'll see how this goes this morning. You can decide which two it is. Part of the legacy of American Christianity, Christianity in America, is that we want Christianity but not much Jesus. We want a Jesus cut down to our size. And what that translates to, on the one hand, let's say the left hand, is a Jesus who is like Mr. Rogers, only nicer. And by nicer, I mean less offensive. And by less offensive, I mean he never says anything that upsets you. He only upsets the people you happen not to like. On the other hand, let's say the right hand, Jesus is essentially Mussolini, but on God's side. So he is always covered in blood, not his own blood, but the blood of his enemies, who happen also, strikingly, to be my enemies or yours. Jesus is an enforcer for my way of life, a defender of the way of life I hold precious. And so we end up, American Christianity, American Christians more often than not, end up with a Jesus who happens to be a projection of our own ego onto the largest screen possible. A Jesus who wants what I want and does what I do and is against anyone who doesn't like what I like and doesn't approve of what I do. This week I was reading for another project, and I came on a picture, a sketch that was drawn in the moment, and it's a, it's a sketch of a, of a slave service in the American South in the days before the Civil War. And in this sketch, you can see the slaves all gathered around, and they look exhausted. Whoever the, the artist was captured that exhaustion. I mean, they've come straight from the fields into this room, to hear the preacher. And the preacher is standing up on the stage and he's waving his hand and he's clearly into it. I don't know if he was himself, if he was underprepared and if he was weird, but he was clearly in this moment preaching with energy. And they're gathered around him almost like this, although there was no one behind him, but on his right, left, and in front of him. And again, all the slaves looked exhausted, but what stands out in the sketch, what is overpowering is the presence of the master, the white man, who's in his suit and tie and holds his Bible, but noticeably has it shut in front of him and is clearly bored. He has this look of passivity and indifference on his face. This is the problem with Christianity with lived out by people who've been convinced that you should always get your way. This is part of our legacy to be who we are as a people, is to get our way and to have things go the way we want them to go. And I've, I keep, my mind keeps going back to that image of that man, that master, sitting in the room with his slaves, his property, trying to live the gospel, trying to proclaim the way of Jesus, and he's sitting there with his closed book and closed heart and closed mind, making sure they don't say anything about Jesus that contradicts the way of life he needs to work. Now, thankfully, 
That is in some ways in our past. Thankfully, that arrangement has broken. But I'm not sure the spirit of that arrangement is entirely broken. And I'm not sure that the spirit of that arrangement is entirely broken off of me or off of you. And if we're going to have hope, if we're going to have, it is always quiet in this room. It is much quieter right now than it normally is. Let's bring the kids back in. We need some background noise. I'm not sure. In fact, let me put it this way. I am sure that that spirit is not entirely broken off of me or off of you. And the only thing that will break that spirit off of us is a confrontation with Jesus as he actually is and not as we imagine him to be, not as we think we want him to be. So when we hear in the gospel, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you when people hate you, I feel so blessed right now, blessed are you when they exclude you, revile you, defame you, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, but woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are full, Woe to you who are laughing. We can't explain that away. If on one hand, let's say the left hand, we have a Jesus who doesn't judge us, and on the right hand we have a Jesus who is the enforcer of our own judgments, we will never be free from that spirit that attempts to use God to our own ends, which is the spirit of idolatry. And it's just as possible to be an idolater in a Christian way, as it is to be an idolater in a pagan way. In fact, I think it is easier, especially when you're raised, developed, nurtured in a culture that gives you a Christianity with a Jesus who fits your tastes. God, deliver us from that. And the beginning of that deliverance comes in the confrontation with a Jesus who says, some are blessed and some are cursed. Some are blessed, and their way of life leads to life. And some are cursed, and their way of of life leads to death. Not cursed by God, but cursed by their own ways. So I want to talk a little bit about cursed and blessed from Psalm 1 and then Jeremiah 17, which which are the readings for the day. So first, Psalm 1, which is a a kind of introduction to the whole of the Psalter. So Psalm 1 is, is like a, a kind of legend for how to read the map of the Psalms. And it sketches this difference between the blessed and the cursed. So listen to it. Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that scorners or sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. So here, a difference here. One, he makes a distinction between scoffers, sinners, and the wicked. And the wicked are those who have become set in their ways. Sinners go wrong, but they don't intend to. The wicked are determined to get their way. And he says, he opens the psalm with, Blessed are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, who do not walk where sinners walk, or tread where sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers, for their delight is in the law of the Lord. In other words, they are turning their attention to someone else's word. What is the way of life that Jesus wants me to live? Not what is the way of life I want to live. What is the way he wants me to live? And that answerability to Jesus is at the heart of everything else we call the life of faith, the life of salvation, the life that leads to life. 
It begins with God's will, not my will, being done. And on the right and the left hand, we are being offered versions of Christianity that assure you, you don't have to worry about that. Jesus happens to agree with you. They are the blessed. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. Now, I'm saying that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which some of you may not know, but is the mecca of a prosperity gospel that promises you, not only does Jesus want what you want, he wants you to have everything you could ever want and more. The God who's not just enough, but is more than enough. A God who wants to saturate you, not not answer your needs, not supply your needs according to his riches and glory, but to make you filthy rich. Right? Not just to have the car you want and the house you want, but more than you could ever need. Right? That, that's what this city is known for. That preaching, that gospel, that quote-unquote gospel. And here the psalm does say, those who follow the way of the righteous, those who are blessed, do prosper. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff or tumbleweeds that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. The way of the wicked is doomed. Now, let me stress this point. It's not that God lashes out against the wicked. It's not that God punishes the wicked for not loving him enough. It's not that God's jealousy is a jealousy that retaliates whenever the wicked refuse to come in line. It's that if you live wickedly, if you live stubbornly, if you live your own way, it will come to nothing because it is foolish whether we realize it or not. It is self-defeating. Sin destroys itself. Wickedness comes to nothing not because God in retaliation punishes us, but because wickedness itself is silly. It's self-defeating. And the only way that leads to life is the way the Lord knows. And if we listen to him, we come to what we actually want, but don't know that we want so long as sin is dominating us. So hear me. Yes, we are going to prosper. To walk in the way of the Lord is to prosper. But he defines what prosperity is, not me. He's the one who tells me, teaches me, trains me to recognize blessedness, to recognize happiness. I can trust that if I follow his way, I will come to joy and not sorrow. I will come to life and not death. But I will come to that joy in his sorrow. I will come to that life in his death. Because the way to life is the way of the cross. This is what Jesus teaches us. There is no way into the fulfillment of what I actually want for myself that doesn't look like me emptying myself in obedience to him in the way that he emptied himself in obedience to the Father for the good of his enemies. This is the hard but good word. Sometimes when we talk about the hard but good word, we end up suggesting that it's painful to follow Jesus. But hear me, it's not painful to follow Jesus. It's painful to do anything but the will of God. It's just that when you are living against God's will, you are drugged against the pain. You don't realize that you're in pain. 
And when you start to follow the way of Jesus, what you think is pain is actually just light being shed on the corruption that is in you. Following the way of Jesus is not a way of sorrow in the way we think of sorrow. Following the way of Jesus is the way of healing. But healing begins in recognizing the ways in which you're already in sorrow and didn't know it. You're already suffering and didn't know it. Sin, wickedness, destroys our humanity. But because of the power of the enemy, because of the power of wickedness itself, because of the human capacity to convince ourselves that what we want to happen is happening, we don't realize the ways in which we're already in pain because we're resisting what God wants for us. So turning to God is a way of turning toward life and health and joy. It is a turning toward prosperity, but the prosperity that Jesus lives, not the prosperity that I've projected out for myself. So let's come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is even more cheerful than I am. If you don't know the prophet Jeremiah... (laughs) He is the prophet of lost causes. We only know a couple of snippets from the book of Jeremiah, and the ones we know are cheerful, like before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, or I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper, and no weapon formed against you shall prosper, etc., etc. Those happen to be the only cheerful lines in the entire book. (laughs) And by the way, they don't apply to Jeremiah. If you go back and read Jeremiah 28, where the promise is, I I have plans for you, there are plans that exclude Jeremiah. (laughs) So think about that. Jeremiah's calling that God singles him out for from before his birth is to announce good news to people that he himself will not receive. He dies in Egypt. He dies in Egypt. Begins in, in, in this priestly family in Israel lives much of his life at the center of of Israel's power in Jerusalem, but dies in in Egypt and dies doomed. In fact, in Jeremiah 20, he has it out with God a bit. And he says, you deceived me when you told me you called me from before my birth. For a moment, I thought that was a good thing. But now I see, like, you always intended for this to be bitter in my mouth. And Part of confronting the Jesus who is rather than Jesus we imagine is seeing that Jesus is surrounded by martyrs and prophets who give their life joyfully, delightedly, but give their life in testimony to the truth. You notice we heard in the gospel today, woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. And Jeremiah, as a true prophet, ends as all true prophets do, as Jesus himself did, dead at the hands of his own people. Because here's the thing. The only prophets we listen to are the prophets who say what we want to hear. That's what it means to be a sinner. That's what it means to be a sinner. What it means to be wicked is to know that about yourself and to double down on it. But to be a sinner is to want prophets who speak a word you want to say. To be the people of God is to realize God sends us prophets who say what we do not want to hear. Which doesn't mean that just because I'm saying what you don't want to hear right now means I'm a prophet. It might mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that. So, Jeremiah 17. Listen to this, which is the Old Testament reading for the day. 
draws up this same contrast between the way of the blessed and the way of the cursed. And it draws on that image between the shrub or the tumbleweed, the shaft, and the tree planted by the rivers of water. Thus says the Lord, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. Now notice, relief is coming. But when you're a shrub, you don't see it when it comes. That God's relief is always being poured out. But if you're not rooted in the life of God, the blessing passes you by. And not only does it pass you by, it passes you by and you curse it. This is the effect of sin on my life and on yours, is that God's grace is being shed on us, but it's not received as grace because our hearts are not aligned with God's heart. We're not tuned in to the frequency of the Spirit. And so when the Spirit is coming past us, gracing us, shedding life on us, we experience it as death and as rejection. He says, well, they, do, they do not see when relief comes. They live in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt waste. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Now hear that. Not just those who trust in the Lord, but whose trust is the Lord. It's possible to have faith in faith. <clears throat> Tulsa. <clears throat> right? It's possible to think that what holds you together is the intensity and sincerity of your own belief in your beliefs. But as Bishop Ed never tires of reminding us, this is a way of life. And what holds us together is the Lord keeping us, gathering us, hurting us along this way. Not how intensely I believe what I think I believe. Not how determined I am to keep confessing what I want to see happen in my life. Their trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes. And its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. Now notice, in, in the ways that I've been critiquing, the American Christian ways, left and right, that give us a Christianity fit to our tastes, we, we tend to think that prosperity means things in my life are going the way I want them to go. But it's very clear in Luke's gospel in Jeremiah and in Psalm 1, that both the righteous and the wicked experience the same weather. This week, someone, I'm off of Facebook, but someone sent me a screenshot of Facebook because you can't escape, right? There's no, there's no way out of this hell, this hall of mirrors we've made for ourselves. And in the screenshot, it was a pastor that I happen to know, a pastor who said, I live in a God-gated community. Right, that's exactly, there should be, the, your soul should vomit, right? I live in a God-gated community. I live in a God-gated community. But let's not single him out for ridicule. That's what we're selling to people and have been selling to people for generations, that if you follow the way of God that we lay out for you, you will get the life you want for yourself. You can have your best life now. And that is wrong and false and leads to death. It leads to where we are right now. And I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet or a friend of a son of a prophet or a nephew or a cousin 
of a prophet, but I'm telling you, the reason we're in the situation we're in right now is that false prophets have had the stage. And they have had the stage because we put them there. You and me, not those people out there. You and I put them there. We paid them to say there, to say what they're saying there. In 1940, I'm almost done. I mean, I know you know that, but I mean, I'm almost done in, in another sense. In... 1940, Martin Buber, who's a Jewish philosopher, professor at the University of Jerusalem, the Hebrew University there in Jerusalem, wrote an essay, a now famous essay called False Prophets. Now remember, it's 1940, it's Jerusalem. He's in the very center of Israeli nationalism, struggling with what do we do as a people over against this rising tide of Nazism, the Third Reich, the, the Holocaust is already underway. And he writes this essay on false prophecy, reflecting on the book of Jeremiah, and specifically the story of Hananiah and Jeremiah and Jeremiah 28. And Hananiah is the quintessential false prophet. Jeremiah has been told that the yoke of judgment is going to be on Israel, and it cannot be shirked. They're going to have to live it. They're going to be sent into exile, and they're going to have to live and Hananiah, as always happens with nationalists, is optimistic. The future is going to be better. And he takes the yoke and he breaks it. And he promises Israel, God is the one who breaks the yoke, not the one who keeps us under it. And in that confrontation, which you can read about in Jeremiah 28, Martin Buber finds this essential difference between the false and the true. And this is what he says. False prophets are not godless. They adore success, and they find success by selling us that promise, the false promise, that the future will be what we want it to be. False prophets are not godless. They worship success, and they find success by selling us the message that the future will be what we want it to be. Now, this is a fundamental difference. This is the sword that cuts to the quick. As long as I have an image of the future I want for myself, I cannot pray for the kingdom of God. Because the coming of the kingdom of God is something better than I can imagine. It's something better for me and better for you and better for our enemies than we can imagine. And this is why when Jesus says, blessed are those who weep now, who are hungry now, blessed are the poor, because when the kingdom comes, they will have the wealth of God. They will have the food of God. They will have the presence of God, the peace of God. But woe to those who are rich now. Woe to those who laugh now. Woe to those who are settled in their way of life. Because the kingdom of God is coming, and it is going to undo what I've imagined that I've wanted for myself and what I've imagined that I've wanted for you. And this is that fundamental difference. The true prophet doesn't say what we want to hear, but tells us that what God is doing, even though it will upset our lives and disrupt what we imagine for ourselves, it is better than we can imagine. Just yesterday, my wife and I were out a bit, and on the street corner, we saw a man with a, a very large, professionally made sign. I mean, this wasn't, you know, scripted out. He didn't write it with a magic marker or crayons. He had had it printed. It was a massive sign. And I can't quote it to you because 
it's terribly offensive. But it was telling you or me, I guess I was the one reading it, to put the poison vaccine in a place that you wouldn't want to put it. But it used Nazi lettering to say that. It used the SS symbols to say it. Now listen, this is not me weighing in on those issues. So if you're getting distracted by that, stop it right now. <laughs> this moment we're living in, right? That's, that's not prophetic. To stand on the street corner with a sign that tells someone else where to go and how to get there. Especially when you're trading on Nazi symbols. That's, that's not prophecy. That's just meanness. And I don't want you to hear in what I'm saying. I mean, I'm anxious about what I'm saying, but don't hear. I'm not angry with anyone. I'm not grieved at anyone. But I feel this in my bones. We are in an incredibly dangerous moment. And we're in a dangerous moment, not because of whomever the president is, but because of the Christianity we've bought and sold. And not just us, but our parents and our grandparents. And the only hope we have, the only real hope we have, is to turn to Jesus and to let him judge us. Did you hear that line in the psalm? The wicked do not stand in judgment. The righteous want the judgment of God because it's only the judgment of God that can save us. So I'm leaving you. Give me three minutes and I'll leave you with this. Two thoughts from Jeremiah. The first one is, Shrubs are in uninhabited salt lands. Uninhabited salt lands. That's what the church should be, a salt land. I mean, we, when we preach about you were the salt of the earth, we usually tie that to flavoring, right? And we make the, which is not altogether wrong. I mean, there's a way in which salt does bring out flavor, and the ancients knew that as well as we do. But what's being said in, in the salt of the earth is not you're going to give flavor to things, right? Flavor ain't fair. I don't know where that came from. Sorry about that. If you don't know the inside joke there, count yourself blessed. But the fla- it's, being Christian is not about bringing flavor to life. It's about being the kind of presence in which lies cannot live. In Psalm 107, which it won't take time to show you, this is the promise. Same thing comes up in Jeremiah again later. God destroys the wicked by bringing them, planting them in waste places and salt lands. So you want to know how we move forward in this moment? Become the kind of presence in whose presence lies die. And you know how lies die? By engaging them with mercy, compassion, patience, self-control, biting your tongue, if, you, if, you met, if I had stopped yesterday on the, on the road, as I was somewhat tempted to do, and talked to this man gently about what he had said in this sign he had had made, what do you think would have come from that? A fight, maybe, yeah. But certainly no change. And when I see that someone is wrong online, and I weigh in to correct them, what do you think happens? Every time you engage a lie with that energy of anger and resentment because you're offended, you sow a dozen more lies. You strengthen the resolve of your enemy when you engage your enemy in a way that threatens them. We have got to stop it. We've got to become salty presences 
Be salty, but be salty in this way. Deny yourself. At the end of Mark's, Mark 9, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace. And you can read the passage for yourself. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. Stop talking so much. Stop reacting to the people who make you angry. Stop trying to fix people. Saltiness is about biting your lips, holding yourself tightly, and waiting on God to do what only God can do. And in a salty land, those shrubs die. The only thing keeping shrubs alive are lies. Become the kind of presence where those things die. And then the good news. All of this is really good news. It may not seem like it, but it is. The really, really good news is this. There's that passage in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can know it? And there's a way of hearing that that simply leaves you in despair. Like, who am I? How could I ever trust myself? But that's not the point. Because in Jeremiah, God is the one who does the ultimate deceiving. God tricks us against the lies we've believed. So here's the really good news. Yes, my heart is wicked. My heart is sick, and so is yours. And so is the heart of everyone you meet. And every time you confront in real life or online or in whatever way, in your house or out, every time you confront someone who's sick, remember you're sick too. But here's the good news. God's work is deeper than our own deception. God's work is deeper than our own deception. And in Jeremiah's day, and in Martin Buber's 1940 Jerusalem, and in 2022 Tulsa, God is at work. The relief is at hand. Grace is present. God is every bit as powerfully present right here and right now in your life and mine as he's ever been in anyone's life ever, anywhere. But we have to be present to it. And being present to it is about turning to him, turning to his judgment and saying, I want to be blessed. I don't want a blessing to conform to what I imagine prosperity is. I want to be blessed in the way that you show me the way. So here's what we need to pray. God, trick us so that we're freed from our lies. Trick us into listening to people we wouldn't have listened to before. Trick us into not saying what we would have said before. Trick us into being salty in the way that Jesus is salty. And if we can do that, if we can do that, the future won't be what we want it to be. It'll be what God intends it to be. And that's better. Amen.